hello and welcome to The Weird and the Strange, a podcast about all things weird and everything strange. I'm Dev and I'm here with my friend Nikki. Hello. <laughs> Finally admitting to being my friend. So lovely. <laughs> friend. Um, and it's Nikki's episode. Hello. Um, so... Everybody, what are you doing for World Asteroid Day? Ooh. I'm a bit early, but I wanted to give everybody fair warning so you could plan your holidays around it. It's the 30th of June, just oh, in case you were wondering. Well, that's that's a lot of notice. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> well, so... Don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> exactly. We'll be coming back to it, obviously. Mm. Um, and on that day in 1908, um, 2013 square kilometres of... Forests in Siberia, Russian, were flattened by what appears to have been an explosion. So imagine the scene. It's a remote part of Russia, Siberia, um, and a fireball is seen streaking across the daytime sky. Within moments, something explodes above uh, Siberia's Tunguska River. This event, now now widely known as the Tunguska event, created seismic vibrations which were recorded by sensitive instruments as much as 1,000 kilometres or 600 miles away. Mm -hmm. Um, At 500 kilometres, observers reported deafening bangs and a fiery cloud on the horizon and about 170 70 kilometres from the explosion, the, the object was seen in the daytime sky as a brilliant sun-like fireball. Thunderous noises were heard. And closer, at 60 kilometres, people were thrown to the ground or even knocked unconsciousness. No, knocked unconscious. Windows were broken and crockery knocked off shelves, which is, you know, a disaster, obviously. Probably the closest observers were some reindeer herders, um, and reindeer, asleep in their tents in several camps about 30 kilometres away. They were blown into the air and knocked unconscious, and one man was blown into a tree and died. Um, And everything around was shrouded in smoke and fog from the burning fallen trees. So... Newspapers, the first newspaper reports came out reported that it might have been a volcanic explosion or a mining accident or a far-fetched idea that this might have been an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth. But no crater was ever found and unfortunately the inaccessibility of the region and Russia's unstable political situation at the time prevented any further scientific investigation. Mm. So it wasn't until 1921, um, so that's like 13 years later, Mm -hmm. that a Russian mineralogist named Leonid Kulik of the Russian Meteorological Meteorological Institute became interested in the story. He embarked on a series of trips to the region, approaching closer and closer to the Tunguska River. And then on April 13th, 1927, he discovered a large area covered with rotting logs. A huge explosion had flattened more than 80 million trees, and only at the epicentre of the blast in the forest of Tunguska, um, some dead and charred trees were still standing. He did not find any meteorite meteorite fragments and he did not find a crater so later so later on in that year in 1927 his first report was published in uh, various national and international newspapers um, he had suggested that an iron meteorite had exploded in the atmosphere and caused the um, the devastation that he had witnessed um, but the lack of any identifiable impact site was explained by the a swampy ground which was there which was too soft to preserve a crater and despite lacking this any physical evidence he called the event the Filimonovo meteorite after the railway station of Filimonovo where a bright light in the sky was observed 
it's only later that it started being called the Katunguska event. So, what was it? So, volcanic and mining explanations were quickly ruled out because of the lack of physical evidence of no volcanoes or mines. So, um, the indigenous Evenks and Yakuts uh, believed a god or shaman had sent the fireball to destroy the world. Um, but engineer and sci-fi writer Alexander Kassantius developed an unusual explanation in the aftermath of Hiroshima um, and Nagasaki. He argued that a nuclear explosion equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima bombs, possible of uh, of possible extraterrestrial or- origin, um, caused this event. And either as a UFO crashed in Siberia or an interplanetary weapon was detonated there for unknown reasons. Interplanetary weapon. Of course. My favourite one, obviously. Yeah. Apart from the pattern of destruction, also geomagnetic anomalies were recorded at the station of Irkutsk, which were similar to those that are seen after a nuclear blast. Mm. Um, so there was some um, some potential uh, sort of evidence for that. Then in the 1960s, um, more earthbound phenomena were proposed to explain the observations. Um, Verne shots, named after author Jules Verne, are speculative magma and gas reactions that violently erupt from the underground. According to this model, uh, a magmatic intrusion beneath Siberia formed a large bubble of volcanic gases, trapped by the basalt layers of the Siberian traps. Finally, in June 1908, the covering rocks were shattered by the compressed gases and bursts of burning methane caused a series of explosions which are described in some accounts. Chemical residuals from this combustion dispersed into the Earth's atmosphere, causing the glowing clouds seen over the world. And this um, this explanation, however, remains speculative at best. Bubbles of gas are observed in the lakes of Siberia, but the methane comes from rotting organic material in the soil in the frozen soil of the Tagia, which I'm assuming is like the top layer of the tundra, not from deep underground. And geolo- geologists mapping the area found no traces of shattered rocks or gas vents, as proposed. I love the fact that this basically describes the outcomes of a giant earth fart. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I was thinking that. Yeah, same. (laughs) Naming it after Jules Verne. It's just basically a massive earth fart. So more fart-based explanations (laughs) were to come. (laughs) So they're they're proposed by astrophysicist Wolfgang Kunt. Yes, with a D. Uh, <laughs> but let's go with it. Um, it has, he's proposed that uh, the Tunguska event was caused by the release and subsequent explosion of a million ten sorry ten million tons of natural gas from within the Earth's crust. The basic idea is that natural natural gas leaked out of the crust and then rose to its equal density height in the atmosphere. From then, it drifted downward because they smelt it, so they dealt it. <laughs> <laughs> in a sort of a wick which eventually found an ignition source such as lightning and then once it ignited the fire streaked along the wick possibly the trees that were uh, over yeah. the, that were left standing in the epicentre and then down to the source of the leak in the ground whereupon there was a huge explosion mm-hmm. so still gas beast <laughs> gas beast humour <laughs> so in 1973 because the 70s yeah. um, American physicists proposed that a small black hole collided with our planet and the explosion could have been the result of matter and antimatter colliding when this happens the particles annihilate and emit intense bursts of energy so it might have been just like a teeny tiny little black hole uh, so, mm. on earth <clears throat> Wow. Colliding with our planet, like, which seems 
interesting. But, you know, 70s. There's a yeah, lot of LSD. <laughs> and they were like, and then we entered into a parallel universe, man. It was a wormhole. My God. <laughs> However, for those who like accept his theories, <laughs> fast forward to February the 15th, 2013, when a smaller but still impressive meteor burst into the atmosphere near Chiblinks in Chile... Chil- no, I think it's Chibinks. Chilabinks. Chilabinks. Somewhere in Russia. Um, <laughs> new evidence to help solve the mystery of Tunguska had arrived. This highly documented fireball created an opportunity for researchers to apply modern computer modelling techniques to explain what was seen, heard and felt. Um, so the resulting interpretation was that Chilabinks was most likely a stony asteroid the size of five-storey building that broke apart about 15 miles above the ground, and this generated a shockwave equivalent to a 550-kiloton explosion. It blew out roughly a million windows, injured more than a thousand people, and fortunately the force of the explosion was not enough to knock down trees or structures. Per the current understanding... Yeah. So per the current understanding... Of the asteroid population, an object like the Chelyabinsk meteor can impact the Earth every 10 to 100 years on average. So this was added to the ongoing investigations by Russian scientists, which have been going on since the event. So Mm -hmm. since the 20s, like there have been thousands of papers published by uh, scientists in Mm. in Russia or the Soviet Union and countless mineral mineral deposits gathered and examinations of the sites and photos from the scene. And so using both this physical evidence and also aided by computer modelling, records from the surveys um, and instead of predicting the likelihood of impact rates based on size alone, the modellers performed a statistical study of over 50 million combinations of asteroid and entry properties that could produce a Tunguska scale damage when breaking apart. So, so these new models focus on scenarios that can reproduce the Tunguska treefall pattern, which um, is like a butterfly. Um, mm-hmm. So it sort of breaks into two parts. Okay. Um, and the second looked at combining the atmospheric pressure waves, seismic signals, signals. So all those uh, things that sort of were were recorded at like a thousand kilometers. Um, so these new approaches, alongside of sort of comparing and contrasting against the Chela Brinks event um, has led to revised estimates of, of what might have happened. Four different computer modelling codes led to similar conclusions, strengthening confidence that, that of how rocks break apart in our atmosphere. Mm. So this is a lot of work that's been done by NASA um, and working together with um, other scientists from different countries. So the most promising candidate was a stony, not icy body, between <laughs> 164 and two, uh, 262 feet in diameter, entering the atmosphere at around 34,000 miles per hour, depositing an energy of a 10 to, to 30 megaton explosion, equivalent to the blast energy of the 1918 Mount St. Helens eruption, um, at about 6 to 9 miles altitude. So that's that's what they think happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the the final supposition but still there's no proof yeah um in recent decades astronomers have come to take the possibility of comet and asteroid impacts very seriously indeed um you can read all about it on the website for the center of near-earth object studies neo neos come on Mm -hmm. and there is a nasa headquarter office responsible for ensuring the early detection of potentially hazardous potentially hazardous objects or foes or so phos Pause. Okay. Oh. Pause. Pause. <laughs> or fair. Oh. Vietnamese. Oh, yes. Soup. <laughs> so, potentially hazardous soup. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. So tracking, characterising them, issuing warnings about potential impacts and providing timely and accurate communications, performing as lead coordination. Um, so it's a lead coordination. So the lead co- coordination node in the US government is planning for response to the actual impact threat. Or you can fo- follow up on the Space Guard Centre, which is the only organisation in the UK dedicated to ad- addressing this hazard. It's a working observatory in Wales. So that's now going on our much extended road trip list. Mm. So when the modelling based on Kungusta is combined with the most recent asteroid population estimates, researchers have actually concluded that the average interval between faux impacts to be on the order of millennia, not centuries as was previously thought. So based on prior population and smaller size estimates. So the news reveals that the it's the likelihood of us an impact occurring during any time with in our lifetimes is much much smaller. And we oh, because we've the, just had one, basically. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> we're covered. <coughs> exactly, because it was a hundred years ago. That's fine. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> we're all right, guys. <laughs> exactly, but we must be vigilant. <laughs> um, so, um, what are these threatening interlopers to our? You know our Ooh. perfect our perfect blue world, um, so this is this explanation. It's a bit in it's a bit sort of in detail, but it's it's just quite interesting. Sorry if you if it's a bit boring, you can all skip on. But it's <laughs> thanks to the Space Guard Centre in the UK for yep. their explanation. Um, there's so close to the sun, we have small four small rocky planets. So there's Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and these are very much alike, and they each have a core made of iron and nickel, surrounded by a rocky crust. Beyond Mars, there's space for another planet, but there's not there. So what in what they have instead is a bit asteroid belt. Yeah. So it's what should have accreted or clumped together to make a planet, um, as it happened everywhere else. Instead, it just sort of drifted about, and they just um, like the millions of bits of rocks and rock and metal, um, which sort of they're a planet that just did never happened. It just couldn't be asked. Yeah. <laughs> Mars was like boom. Venus was <laughs> like boom, and this planet was just like yeah. Yeah. What? Uh. It's too hard. I'm having a nap. (laughs) But also, because the largest of the planets, Jupiter, every time the the asteroids tried to clump together in a little group, they were ripped apart by Mm. Jupiter's enormous gravitational field. So no wonder they had a nap. (laughs) Yeah. So then you've got the gas planets. So Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Uranus is gassy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very big gas planet. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's a lot of farts, fart jokes in in this episode. Um, And then beyond Neptune, things get a bit confused again. So that far from the sun, the disk of material that clumps together to form the planets was just too thin to make any more. Um, so once the particles had clumped together, they were just a bit. They were just a few miles or tens of miles across. They were too far apart to get beyond to get become a proper oh my planet. God. Reach! <laughs> I don't care. Uh, actually, it doesn't matter. Don't worry. <laughs> so there's just basically. What about Pluto though? Well, so it's not a planet. It's. Has it? I thought it'd been re re given its status. No, it's was it it's, an exoplanet or yeah, something? Exactly. Like that, it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's um. So it's basically they. What what you get there is just loads of really big icy mud balls, like so oh, mixtures so of ice and Yeah, it's a really massive dirty snowball. Um, Amazing. <laughs> so the the ones that are um, predominantly ice are called comets, um, and the ones that are predominantly rock are called asteroids. asteroids. Oh, I never knew the difference. So some are quite. Some of the comets are actually quite large, and one has been mistaken for a planet, Pluto. 
Um, oh. And then these ca- comets can be fi- are found in the belt um, beyond Neptune, known as the Kuiper Belt, and in a massive bubble that surrounds the whole solar system. And this enormous reservoir of comets is known as the Oort Cloud. Oh, nice. It's a great name. Oh, so, God, thinking about this gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know. Well, like, I love if you it. really want to worry about catastrophic collision, assuming no Bruce Willis types have headed off to destroy it before impact, then if we did have a large-scale impact, then the immediate effects are as follows. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, Let me guess. A lot of gas. A lot of gas. <laughs> as everyone's shitting themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, there's, there'd be an explosion, obviously, uh, local firestorms raised by superheated air from the impact. Um, a crater, probably 20 times the diameter of the impacting body, would be excavated in a matter of seconds, and the debris ejected into suborbital trajectories. So this would then re-enter the atmosphere uh, as a meteor shower from hell, um, possibly all over the glo- globe, raising massive fires that would r- then destroy a significant proportion of the biomass. Um, then intense acid rain would fall as a result from the ionisation of the air as the impactor entered the atmosphere, as would the production of pyrotoxins. Mm. Mm. So the ozone layer would be severely damaged. Major volcanism and seismic activity can be expected as the shockwave from the impact rippled across the planet. And then this would obviously cause massive global environmental disaster. Mm. So given we're an ocean planet, in addition to most or all of these effects, the most likely um, impact at sea would also produce a significant tsunami capable of travelling considerable distances and possessing enormous energy. Such surges will pose a substantial threat to low-lying and coastal areas so if you look at the UK as an example much of our population and economic infrastructure is located near to the sea yeah and so we would be at particular risk from an impact anywhere in in the Atlantic Ocean uh, the main killing mechanism, however, would be the mass, vast amount of dust and debris injected into the upper atmosphere, combined with smoke from the firestorms. These would obscure the sun and cause a phenomenon similar to, but much more severe than the nuclear winter that everyone was so worried about during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It would likely to pose the greatest threat to the ecosphere on a global scale as food chains would collapse and darkness, cold, starvation set in. It's all very dystopian. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And but, there'd be like three lone survivors. Yeah. But what if you were in your bunker eating beans and tomato soup, uh. preparing for the future? After a while, the atmosphere would clear, um, but oh. the surface of the earth would be now mainly white in colour, so either would reflect too much of the sun's radiation and start a new ice age, would be freezing, Yeah. Um, or the atmosphere will contain a substantial excess of CO2 resulting from all the global fires and the release of the gas from carbonate rocks and volcanism, and could, so it could be one massive hellfire. Oh, right. So it's either freezing cold... <laughs> yeah, you don't want to survive that, do you, really? Yeah. Mini ice age or vast hell hellfire oh, pit. What If that happened, what would be the last thing you ate? Uh what we had for tea actually chicken kia chicken chips, kia. <laughs> chips and lettuce well because you wouldn't you wouldn't be getting any chickens so your chickens would be dead yeah i mean this is a hypothetical last meal nikki <laughs> okay hypothetical last maybe scampi actually scampi. <laughs> amazing i do love a scampi and chips i'd have a lasagna oh, but yeah. not a disappoint like not a disappointing lasagna no like one with loads of super crim- crunchy yeah cheese on the top one that i made i think yeah I always order lasagna, not always, but when I order lasagna out, I'm like, this is absolutely gross. Yeah. Because mine's amazing. (laughs) I think it's like, it's like those, it's like a bolognese. It's like Mm. what you've grown up with and what you cook yourself Mm. is your favourite type of bolognese. Yeah. Lasagna. 
So anyway, it might be a slightly less major impact. You know, we might not all die. Okay, um, good. Phew. Like the Tunguska event. However, because urbanisation has advanced so much since early early last century, um, it does make it more likely that a future impact, even a relatively small one, could result in a massive loss of human life and property. Um, and the timescale for those type of impacts is between around 50 to 100 years. Ooh. Wow, what can we do? So there are a multitude of, of attitudes to take. She'll be right. Don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, worry about one. it. She'll be right. Um, given enough warning and an accurate ground zero prediction, both entirely feasible, given all the sort of like the... Eyes um, exam- in the sky. Exactly. It might be possible to evacuate the point of impact in areas in, in danger, such as low-lying coastal regions, etc. So at this point, everybody goes to the mountains. Um, um, for larger globally threatening events, long-time protection and supply would be necessary for any surviving population. Basically... Work out where your nearest seed bank is, your renewable energy provider, an underground mushroom garden, and polycentals, because you're going to need them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, your exits are here, 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 your seed bank is here, (laughs) your hydroelectric dam is here. (laughs) Um, So could we destroy with them with rockets? So the possibility of destroying them with high-yield nuclear weapons has been studied in some detail, so it's the Armageddon solution. Yeah. However, with the current... God, um, that's someone... Someone gets paid. Yeah. To do... Anyway, sorry. With the current... Somebody gets paid to do Hollyoaks. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> with the current lack of detailed knowledge of the exact composition of particular objects and their structural strength, there's always an element of doubt as to the effectiveness of this course of action. The fear would be that complete incomplete disruption of the object would then sub- subject the Earth into multiple impacts from pieces of the original body. <laughs> You'd be like, that was just going <laughs> to land on Australia. Now it's going to land on all of our ship yeah. <laughs> So it would be tr- like transforming a cannonball into a cluster bomb yeah <laughs> so you yeah, made it worse <laughs> yeah yeah bruce willis thanks for that yeah um third one is neo snooker so um <laughs> assuming that the potential impactor can be identified early enough its orbit could be modified sufficiently to ensure that an impact would not not occur so I, in my head i've got like you know you send out a thing that just like boom, yeah you know, like a white ball <laughs> yeah like um what's the balls yes or curling exactly and someone furiously brushing the other <laughs> <Yeah>. side. Well, actually, so methods considered include the use of gravity by parking a spacecraft nearby <laughs> and then moving it away. <laughs> okay. So that's um, relying on the mutual gravity to change its orbit or the use of propulsion units or mass drivers using the, mater- using the material of the object itself as fuel um, to physically drive it from its collision path. But only very small adjustments would be required to ensure a miss rather than a hit. So surely this is what we're training people for in esports because I can't think of any other. Yeah. <laughs> you know that sort of minuscule sort of like margin of yeah. error would be uh, I think would be a bit more interesting. But if you're still worried about it, there's a list of neos on the, the NASA CNEO website in the show notes that you can review daily whilst you fit out your bunker. Um, <laughs> the next pl- closest approach is 2020k. Uh, CK1 on the 17th of February um, so um, we're oh. recording this on the 18th yeah, so, so it's, it's passed been... without <laughs> no I did read somewhere on the I didn't know whether you're going to bring it up but there is we have got an asteroid heading towards us it, that it, that was um, recorded it was um, in the news the day yeah. that I wrote this right. and it was um, a undermined by NASA's um, 
on the day. Oh, um, okay, fine. They changed the coordinates because as soon I as was, I saw the article, and I was like, <coughs> "Nope, not going to read that." <laughs> so basically, it said know. there was there was um, something. Uh, it was an actually potentially hazardous. Yeah, it had been classified as. Yeah. But what happens is the closer things get, the more information they've got about oh, the them. The more you can see, and it, so yeah. the closer things get. It tends to the they sort of go. Oh, actually, it's okay. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry about so it. So the article was like, r- shit, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So the article was written probably about a week ago, and right. at which point they were like, well, it might be quite dangerous. <laughs> and then they're like, by the time it comes to night, yeah, it's not. And so like, yeah. who told the press? <laughs> yeah. So yesterday at three forty-one was when the next, the last closest approach was due to be. Oh, so, interesting. Um, we're still alive. So hooray. yay. Also, I can recommend a show called Survivors, um, and it's a, a UK show from the 1970s. Not the remake, the remake uh, is dreadful. Right. Yeah. But there's like a 70s version for ideas of survivalism. And there is the best comb-over in a leading man for you <laughs> ever to see. Okay. It's brilliant. His name is Greg. And of course. I challenge you not to, by the end of it, be like, well, maybe he is not that unattractive oh no 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 <laughs> so shout out to my mate carol in australia who watched that with me um she introduced me to it actually and as i'm knitting clothes and eating forage good in my hydroelectric dam i'll think of her and hers in australia because we've both identified where we're running to in the <laughs> in case of global meltdown so yeah so that's um the tunguska event and then a load of stuff about asteroids <laughs> Interesting. And uh, not now not worried no. at all. So Tunguska um, is actually in an X Files episode, which is what I was talking uh, about X Files. Um, so I just discovered that X Files is on Prime, so I'm gonna be in an X Files dungeon for But they but in that one they of course believed that it was the impact of a UFO. Um, yes. Bringing Martian um uh, Martian rocks to yes. the world, um which were had uh, microbes in them that were potentially damaging to humans. Ah, of course. Well, an astronaut's come out recently and said that there potentially are extraterrestrials living on Earth. Oh. Currently. But, like, as microbes and things like that. Oh, Maybe yeah. that's what the coronavirus is. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, the, the, did you read the thing that there's, like, um, QI, that um, astronauts quite regularly hear um, people knocking on the doors of the spacecraft? No! Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Like, that they they regularly have sort of, like, weird paranormal normal things happening. Is that there. psychological or...? It, it was just a tweet from... QI. Oh my god! <laughs> I love that. Oh, maybe that's going to be my next episode. Yeah. So yeah, they they, they hear like sort of. Oh, I absolutely love space so much in that. Um, like it's just weird. Yeah, I mean uh, that's why I went into. It. I mean, I cut a lot of stuff yeah. out of this because I got really. Every time you think about it, like it's so conceptually difficult to understand. Yeah. And to and to conceptualise really, yeah. like things like you know, um, like because there's no ox- oxygen in space, that things wouldn't explode in the way that they're always shown to yeah. explode because there's no noise. Yeah, there's no noise and no explosion, um, at all. It's silent. Yeah, that even that just like, but also stuff like when meteorites like when meteorites hit the earth because yeah. we're hit by loads of stuff all the time yeah and um, but because most of it falls in places like or burns up in the yeah and burns up in the, exactly um but if it's big enough and heavy enough to actually hit the ground the thing that makes the crater is that it just keeps going because it's going so fast it just keeps going until the it becomes so superheated by the friction that it basically um compresses and then 
the whole thing gets so hot that um, metal and rock vaporise around it. Oh, wow. So it becomes this huge vaporised bunch of, of explosion. Yeah. And so then, yeah, it just explosively vaporises and that's when you get a huge underground explosion and then everything above that explosion blows uh, out, right. which is what leads to the crater, which is why it looks quite a lot like a volcano. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. So yeah, it just Ooh, keeps going, uh... and it doesn't matter which uh, which way it comes in. Yeah, it will always have a round thing because as it comes in, it's still what what's causing the crater is the explosion of the stuff coming out. Yeah, which will always be round. Mm. So yeah, the like I I mean it's <laughs> I think the guy that wrote, writes the um what's it called the space uh, the space guard center website clearly is like a. A teacher of science. Oh, really? Does he simplify everything? <laughs> yes, very much so. so. That's what you need, isn't it? I mean, I've been doing parallel universes for fucking years now, uh, and I just—it's so complicated. Yes, yeah, I know. And it, and it's one of those things where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, get it. No, I've lost it. Yeah, it used to be like that. I used to read the New Scientist, and I used to sort of go through going, mm, I understand that. I understand yeah. that. And then it'd be a thing on quantum physics. Yeah. And I'd have to, and you're just like, and you get there, and, and you're like, hurts. I sort of get it, but yeah. I don't. And then you're like, no, I don't yeah. get. It. And then I get really stressed out when I do. It's like a ma- like I'm really bad at maths. Yes. And you're doing a maths puzzle, mm. and you're like, it, it stresses me out. <laughs> I remember once reading about something called the multi-brain theory mm. and there was a, but the sort of part of that theory the reason that it was it was sort of not likely to be true or something I mean apologies to any scientists out there this is like we're not a sense. science podcast no. we're not a history podcast <laughs> no, we're, we're definitely neither of those things um, but uh, and it's to do with the fact that the proof that multi-brain theory potentially doesn't exist is the fact that we don't see brains just appearing on their own in midair and i was like what, what? 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 Is, this, is this on the, is this written in the onion <laughs> like yeah. you know this isn't like is this the daily mash rather than you know the new scientist it just made my head hurt yeah and i was like oh i don't so know weird. if i can cope but you know um do you know the the band called the eels Yes. Um, so the the front man of the eels, Mr. E, his dad was a famous physicist who um, first discovered um, like uh, um, two different, like a proton that was time traveling or something. He's like a, like a super famous physicist. Oh, right. Okay. And like this guy only found this out like really, really fairly recently. About his dad? Yeah. I mean, it's 10 years ago now because he did a tour and he had like a documentary about his dad and what his dad managed to discover. And um, and then he sort of plays I'm from the Eels type of music afterwards. <laughs> and you're just sort of like, this is a very weird night. Yeah, <laughs> this I'm is, oh it. my God. Yeah. So, um, but anyway. Yeah. So that's the Tunguska event. So... Probably an asteroid just exploding above the Earth, but also, I mean, it could have been a load of other things because there's no proof because nobody went up there to look yeah. for 13 years. So, mm. Killed a bunch of reindeers, though. <laughs> Poor Santa. Yeah. <laughs> cool. cool. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for that. I really said thanks for listening. Thanks, um, thanks you guys for listening. <laughs> and and thank, um, thanks for researching. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, if you if you if you're worried about it, um, check out the show notes for um, all the details of the Sino, um or you can just Google it. Um, yeah, just Google it because yeah. you're not going to get around to that for a while. No. <laughs> and you can, pardon me, you can check it um, um, every day if it really worries you. <laughs> 
Yeah, don't do that, guys. No, because what are you going to do? I don't exactly. really want to live in a nuclear winter. No. All right. Well, oh. thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.